0: You will get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show Pat Kenny. Now, Pat was my guest on episode 266 and if you have not heard that first conversation, I urge you to hit stop right now go back, listen to that first episode, and then come back to this one. Pat has an incredibly powerful story from a mental health perspective and his own personal loss of his father, his son, and his wife. Now, in this second conversation, we discuss writing his book, Taking the Cape Off, which not only walks the reader through his powerful journey, but provides so many takeaways from health, mental health, and grief. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Pat Kenny. Enjoy. All right, well, Pat, um, I want to welcome you back to the show. The little backstory of this kind of introduction. We have spent the last 30 minutes trying to get past a bunch of gremlins in the works, and we just called out... Um, Eileen and Sean and all of a sudden things started working again so (laughs) that kind of ties into the signs that I'm sure we're going to talk about today Um, so I want to start by saying thank you so much I guess all of you plural for uh, joining me on the behind the shield podcast again
1: (laughs) that's great I'll have to uh I'll have to move over on my chair and let them both sit on
0: So our last conversation was almost three years ago. And for everyone listening, um, it was episode 266. I always say this when I've had people on multiple times, but I think this is about as pertinent as ever with this particular conversation. If you haven't heard Pat's first episode on this show, I urge you to hit stop right now, go back, listen to 266 first, and then come back to this conversation because I don't want to drag you through all this again and... You told such an incredible, powerful story. I think we chatted for like two hours in the end. Um, So I wanted to put that out first. So when we chatted last, you were still a professional firefighter and I know you transitioned out. So let's begin with that. Talk to me about your decision to finally retire. And then I know that is such a huge struggle for so many responders. What was your transition out from the fire service like for you specifically?
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And and thanks so much for having me on. And I appreciate our friendship over the, it's hard to believe that's three years, um, the time we've spent talking about a lot of other topics. And this one's a real, a pertinent one. So the decision to retire, I had originally in my mind going to retire when I was 60. Um, so it would have been in 2017. And unfortunately um Eileen, my wife, was diagnosed with brain cancer in 2016, so our dream to be sitting on my 60th birthday in this little pub in Ireland, the oldest pub there called Sean's Pub, uh, went out the window, and it ended up instead taking um, her ashes over there to be buried at that point. And she gave me five things before she died, literally 48 hours before she died, that she wanted me to do. And one of them she made me promise was, don't retire. It's not a good time now. You'll be alone. You won't have a purpose. Um, it'll do bad things to you. And as usual, I always kidded that she was the sixth bugle in the house. I had five bugles, but it didn't mean a damn thing in this house. <laughs> um, she was right, and um, so I stayed on in a great, great place called Western Springs with a lot of support from the people on the fire department as well as the administration. Um, and I stayed from 17 all the way until I got towards the end of 20, which meant that I my last year was spent also as the emergency manager, so dealing with the pandemic. A lot of people ask me, aren't you sorry that you didn't retire earlier so that you wouldn't have to go through that? And like most of us, um, if I do a self-diagnosis, I am definitely a type AAA personality and I would have had a hard time sitting on the sidelines for that one. So I'm glad that I was in the middle of it. Now, some days if you'd asked me, I would have had a different answer, but um, I am very glad that I was part of that. And I was looking, though, the book was going to be finished in November of 20, and it was time in my mind to go on to the next phase of my life. I had a great department, I had a great deputy, I'd started succession planning, we had moved people into new positions, and I had the support of village administration all the way across the board. So, In terms of succession planning, it couldn't have gone any smoother, but I had one spot that was critical that I had to make work or else I wasn't going to make the move. And that was the deputy chief's position. My deputy was moving to chief. We didn't have anybody in the organization because we were a combination department who would be in a position to leave their full-time career, um, to take that spot. Didn't really have the training yet. Would have put them in a bad position, I think more likely to fail than to succeed. And I had a young man who worked for me when I was the chief in Hinsdale that left our department to go to a bigger department for a more chance of, of structure fires, more chance of advancement. Um, and we knew when he came into our organization, he was a leader and he had gone to this other department and as we had predicted, worked his way all the way up to fire chief. So I just took a shot at it. thought I, I'm going to ask. Um, he's very successful there going from a bigger organization, coming to a kind of a tiny organization, not sure that he'd ever be interested in again, as one of those things that's, signs that I believe in, if it's meant to be, Um, we had this conversation and we weren't, I went out with my significant other and and he and his wife and um, not five minutes into the conversation, his wife asked me, are you, you're thinking about retiring and is it true you're writing a book? And uh, because at that point I didn't really tell anybody and I said, yeah, it is. Um, She said, well, yeah, I'm looking for him too. I've been looking in the paper all the time for a chief's job. And my significant other kicked me under the table because I had said we pulled in the parking lot. Yeah, this is a thousand to one odds here, but I'm going to ask. And I looked at her and I said, "Really?" And then I looked at him and I said, "Why?" Well, I have to make a lot of cuts. Um, I've been given a number I have to reach. I've been given a plan. I gave them a plan that would have made it work. They told me no, um, so I would lose positions and possibly have to close stations um, that I fought to open and to hire. And uh, I'm just Lost, and so I didn't say another word. We went through all the way through dinner. At the end of dinner, I came out with two shots at Jameson. I put them on the table. He said, "Oh, what do we celebrate?" And I go, "Well, it depends on your answer." And he ended up accepting to take the deputy chief's position, when knowing then that when the chief leaves, he would move up. So I couldn't have been better succession planning if if, if I had written it in a, a different book. Well, now my decision is he needed to move and we needed to get this done by January. Um, The first thing I learned about if you're going to make a retirement date, don't make it in the Midwest in the middle of winter when there's one hour of sun a day and your biggest decision on Friday might be a $3 million decision. And your decision on Monday is, do I snow plow at 10 in the morning or do I do it at two o'clock in the afternoon? Um, So I, I really struggled the first four months. COVID was still in place. So I couldn't go teach. I couldn't go speak. I really couldn't go out of the house for a whole lot. And um, I felt that wave of depression that I didn't think I would have. And many of my colleagues that I talked to were like, yeah, but you felt like you had this all set. And I go, I did. I walked out and the place is better without me. There are strong people who have the same mission and the same care for people that I feel Fantastic about. So if I feel so fantastic, why do I feel lousy? Um, I wanted to call up and say, you know, can you just pretend like you, you can't find a key that you really need and call me, just so I feel needed. And I went to my counselor and said, um, can you kind of fill me in here on what's going on? Why am I why am I feeling this way? And she said, Do you realize that in a lot of major companies, what they actually do is they bring in um, counselors. To help work their way through when you're making this transition. She goes, now you're not gonna find that in the fire service, but everybody goes through this. So what the phases that you're going through are, are natural. So I thought, okay, I just gotta push through and, and by June, weather's getting nicer. I'm able to go outside and do more because physical fitness definitely keeps me going, definitely works hand in hand with my mental health well-being. And I started to be able to go speak and I, I got a second wind and thought, okay, this is kind of where my new direction where I should be able to go, but I can tell you, so I retired in January of 2021 and here we are in September 1st of 2022 and am I still fully adjusted to that? No, um, I still have struggles. My, the joke is my, my middle son, Patrick, people will ask him, so how, so how does your, like, your dad like being retired? And he'll always say... Um, I don't know yet because he's not really retired. He just doesn't go to a firehouse. So I found myself keeping myself very busy, almost too busy. And the timing of our interview, as, as I always believe when we connect, there's a purpose to it. Why we laughed about the angels at the beginning here. Um, in July, I had a real struggle my, personally. With slowing down, I took the month of July off. I did a horrible job last year of scheduling things. I wor- used to work off my phone like I did when I was at the firehouse. And that doesn't work when you now have all sorts of th- other things in life that are more important than what you were doing as a vocation. And I, I found myself saying, you-, you need to take a break. You need to slow down. So took July off. Um, there's a project in the works. And you're the first one to hear about it. Um, from a friend of mine who wanted to do a documentary, never done a documentary, very creative soul, Um, actually lives in Ireland, somebody that I met a number of years ago, again, through a meant to be meeting, said, yeah, I want to do this documentary. Um, And he said, I want to do it on your book. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, I want to do it on your book. That message needs to get out. And I think this is another format to do it in. So my role in July was to go back through family pictures, go back through pictures of Sean specifically, but also go back through pictures of Eileen, Um, go back through some of Sean's medical records, just to look at um, diagnosis, places he had been, things like that. Well, I made the brilliant decision to do that when nobody was here, because I didn't want anybody else to be upset when all these pictures got laid out, many of which would make you smile, but also then makes you realize that that physical touches has, has been permanently removed. And it was, I couldn't have made a dumber move because it drove me into a real deep depression where I couldn't sleep. I had flashbacks of going to the morgue to identify him. Um I, I made the mistake of the most damning report was he would we took him to Mayo Clinic and Mayo Clinic diagnosed him Uh, and said that he was terminally ill. It was the first time I had heard that term used in the the realm of mental health. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, he's in so much pain, and none of these medications or interventions are working. Someday, he's going to make the decision. He can't take it anymore. And so I started to read the report. And I should have stopped after the first paragraph, because I was sobbing after the first paragraph. But for whatever reason, maybe similar to when people drive past a car accident and can't stop staring, I kept reading. And it, there either there were things in there that I I on purpose forgot or tried to forget. or there were things in there that I didn't even know, but they were horrific. And I was lost, completely lost, never felt, have not felt that bad in in years. And I didn't know what to do. So I, in a panic call, called my counselor and said, I'm in trouble. I need to see you like right away um, and explained a little bit about what the trigger was. And she said, okay. So I went in and talked to her and she had told me a number of years ago, we, we figured at least eight when we sat there. Um, she said, you have PTSD. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, well, no, I'm not talking about PTSD specifically on calls you went on. She said, yeah, that was a that's a contributing factor. But she said, it was 15 years of watching your son suffer. And the last five multiple suicide attempts, wondering if he was going to live or die in that feeling of you couldn't save him. And then eventually him dying by suicide. She goes, you have PTSD. She goes, it's funny, you don't have a problem explaining that to people when it involves them or telling them how important it is to go for help and realizing that this isn't something you can will away, that it's, it's, a, it's a chemical reaction in your brain and there are triggers and you have to work. She goes, you're great at telling everybody. She goes, maybe you ought to read your own damn book. She said, you have this. And she goes, what happened to you was you climbed into the past. She said, and you felt all of that pain all over again she said and that's not unusual and that pain's never going to go away the grieving and the loss is never going to go away until you put your arms around them again but she said then you made the mistake of you brought it back to the present with you and that's what triggered your event and she goes so now we've got to work through the past is the past go back in the past and then leave it there and move forward out of it i wasn't sure I'd know how to do that. You know, here's somebody who's been, I've been out teaching on that circuit since 2009. And people look at me sometimes they are like, well, you you, know, you probably know the answers to all this stuff, which is totally wrong. And so I started down this journey that middle of July with, okay, how do I get back on my feet again? And how do I keep this from reoccurring? And what she did that day that was was powerful was, but the first time she put things in a box for me. And I've always done, even when I was writing the book, The, the my consultant Shannon said, You know, I, I told you just right off the top of your head that was a mistake. She said, I, I have worked with military people who've written books and they all think in a box. Give me the box, give me the assignment, give me the parameters, and they just move on. She said, That nilly willie doesn't work for you. Well, this was the first time that she had challenged me that she made things in that box for me, like, all right, I can go back in the past and I can feel the pain and I can live there. But when I come out of it and re-enter the present, I have to take those situations and the pain's got to be gone. The shame of feeling like I couldn't save Sean has got to be left back there and use those memories going forward. So my first trial by error was I, I did a program A week ago in Franklin, Tennessee, and it was the first time I did Sean's talk. It's called Taking the Cape Off. Now, what I always call it Sean's talk. And I told his story and I told Aileen's story. And for the first time in years, I didn't choke up. Sometimes I just break down and cry for a little while in the middle of the presentation. But this time I didn't even choke up. And I literally stopped and thought about before I went on, like, okay, when you tell the story, it's in the past. You don't have to bring the pain to the present. You're stating facts. So don't relive as you're telling that story, the emotions you felt that day that he wasn't breathing, the day that Eileen was diagnosed. Don't relive those emotions. Tell the facts and then get the educational component that you're there for to the crowd about mental illness being a physical illness and here's why. And I'm amazed because always I get emotional and always afterwards, I am exhausted. Like I'd gone out and ran 20 miles. And this time I wasn't. Now, would I tell you it's the best presentation I've done? No, because I was rushing and I was thinking instead of just reacting. Um, The message, the feedback I got was the message was still well accepted and, and understood, but I did it without the personal impact because my concern back to your original question about retirement was a number of people have challenged me and said maybe it's time to stop doing that maybe it's destructive now it was helpful in the beginning you and Eileen got to do that together it really probably helped save your marriage because you had a common goal because so many marriages when you lose a child regardless of circumstances end up in a divorce but now maybe it's not a good thing and I'll tell you what that that part tore me apart I'm like Yeah, you might be right, but if I stop, do I lose my connection with them? If I stop, do people not know about them? Do I not, can't carry their legacy the way I could with what I'm doing? And that one was just hard to swallow. Last week gave me almost the permission slip of, no, you, you can keep doing it. You just have to do it a different way. And how I feel today talking to you versus if I had talked to you two weeks ago, completely different. Um, I feel like the mission has been redefined, that my life's purpose has not changed. It's just been reshaped. And I don't have to I don't have to beat myself up in order to make the educational part out there or to make the connection with the audience that can resonate with the experience but not in my own personal loss. So I'm much more comfortable now with going forward in that retirement section of my life as opposed to how I really have been over the last 18 months.
0: Well, that's amazing to hear because I know when we first spoke, you were already getting to that point where you were becoming aware of the cost of some of these talks. And we, I think we made the discussion of, well, Podcasts are an amazing medium because moving forward, if you want to hear, you know, when it was present, when you were emotional, go to, you know, episode 266 of Behind the Show podcast, for example, and you can hear that. But, you know, I've kind of progressed on from that and my presentation is different now. But I think what's also interesting about your story is you know of course the magnitude of the trauma of losing sean of losing eileen and obviously your your father when you were young and almost dying at his graveside those are very obvious traumatic events but if we're not taking into account the compounding element that is a, a, a service in the you know in the fire service and the sleep deprivation and the organizational stress and all, you know, all the things that we do see, um, there's a huge amount to unpack when you transition out. And I think what I see is one of the lesser discussed coping mechanisms is busyness. And so you transition out now, you still somewhat had the purpose because you were out there doing talks, but you kind of lost that identity. You were now a retired firefighter, you know, you weren't on a rig, you weren't driving an SUV or whatever it was at that point. You weren't amongst that tribe anymore. Specifically, um, you didn't drive home knowing that you know. In, in, in an operational sense, I made I made someone's life better today. And then, as you started gating back on the the busyness that you were doing, I'm sure that was probably when things started cracking, and you were forced to then face things that you'd probably been suppressing with the workload you'd given yourself.
1: No, you you summed it up. Very well, and you know me. When you asked me a question, I probably took up three quarters of the show just answering the first question. That's um, why I love you.
0: <laughs> you yeah, don't have to true. ask a few. <laughs> you
1: you, uh, you 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 summed it up perfectly. Is I've been running. I think I've been running my whole life. I think I've been running since my since my dad died. Because boy, could I have used counseling at fourteen? But I I had too many people walking past the casket. Um, and those of you who are listening who don't know, I was an only child. Um, Saying, you're now the man of the house. You're now the man of the house. So there was no time, especially being brought up in that tough Irish culture of to, you know, big boys don't cry. And there wasn't, you couldn't even mourn. It was like, all right, this is your job and you want to make your dad proud. And I think I started to run then. And I don't know that I've ever stopped running until july when it hit me now there have been other times where i've been on vacation or something in the past and usually it's only it was a week so the first couple of days you're winding down and then maybe the middle three you're able to slow down and then the next couple you're winding back up because you're going back i don't think i ever sat just in the quiet and the alone and let all those feelings catch up to me um realizing that I didn't there are parts of my even my dad's loss that I still haven't finished grieving and in in an unhealthy way I think it it carried forward with me and the same thing with with Sean and 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 with Eileen also It, it it all caught up and the trigger was physically looking at a past looking at a happy child looking there's a great picture of him there's a little boy and it just it just broke my heart I'm like look at this great kid, this beautiful, good looking, and with the smile on his face of where the mental illness had not taken over yet. And thinking about what would he be now? I mean, he would be 37 coming up here in a couple of weeks and wife, kids, what a great dad he would have been. And the reality is he wouldn't have been any of those. He was too sick. He would have never had a quote unquote normal, forever what we call that normal life. But looking at those pictures was like, Yes, he could have. And then the second thing that hit me was, and did you do everything you could to make sure that he had every chance to do that? And it just relit. And it wasn't guilt, it was more shame. Like, okay, because guilt can can times be a positive. I mean, people hear that word and go, it's always negative, but it it can be a positive. You know, I feel guilty. I didn't work out yesterday. Okay, that's gonna motivate me to work out today, which will be a positive thing for me to do. Shame's never got anything but negative. And growing up in the house I did, the shame was used a lot for, for a motivational tool that and my mom had her own mental health challenges along with having to raise a kid um, with her husband dying suddenly. And so I think I brought that along as baggage and, and I didn't realize it until I slowed down and then it all hit me like a ton of bricks. And in the, if you'd asked me that day, was that a blessing? I would have told you no. Um, do I think now sitting here on September 1st, that that was a blessing, um, that maybe those angels we talked about today, I wasn't really alone in this house. They were here, but they were really kind of hammering me like, okay, you, you need to find a way to forgive yourself and truly move forward. We're always going to be here. That's not a problem, but you need to move forward and not carry that shame into your mission and then go keep doing what you're doing. And, uh. So, I think, it, I think it was a blessing.
0: So, as you had that kind of realization, you know, halfway, well not halfway through, but you know, six months into your retirement, you mentioned about a counselor. So, I'm assuming you already had a good relationship and you had that resource to immediately connect with. Talk to me about how you built that relationship. And then, were there any other tools that you used alongside it?
1: And so, the, the counselor that I see was Sean's counselor. So, this goes back. She probably started to see Sean, I wanna say around the year 2000, I'm guessing, but it goes back that long. And during his, the last few years of his struggle, Eileen and I would go see her also to try and get some advice as parents. So we had already established that relationship. Previous to Sean passing, the, the involvement I had was minimal and, and frankly didn't really think I needed a counselor. I needed to find a way to save him. So it was more on me. It had nothing to do with was I taking a beating mentally, was you know, it was wasn't about me. It was about him. Um, and as that relationship has grown and and unfortunately the losses have mounted, she was really the one. The, the title of the book would have been, instead of taking the cape off, it would have been taking the effing cape off, because she's the first one who said to me in a counseling session one-on-one when I was trying to be really, really strong all the way through everything that Eileen was going through after all this loss, she said, Pat, for Christ's sake, will you take the, and she didn't cut the word short, off because that's what you're doing. You are trying to save the world and you can't do it. So you need to face you are not God. And that's the first thing we need to get through your thick skull. And so the relationship of being able to sit there and just talk openly in in raw and be challenged on things, frankly, that a lot of times, and as she said, she challenged me, you have PTSD and I blew her off for eight or nine years going, no. I told her the one day, listen, I got a bachelor's degree in psychology. I've I read stuff on this so I can go out there and talk about it. It's like, I, I don't know anything about PTSD. Well, of course, she's got a doctorate and she's laughing at me. And I won't tell you what the words used after that one, but it was like, okay, grow up a little bit here. You've got a lot more to learn than you think you do, and it's okay. And that was the part I think I, I struggled with. We, we hear so many times now on, on the media and some and some incredible programs that are out there that people are doing saying, it, it, it's okay to not be okay. And I wasn't buying any of that. I was like, no, I, I really am okay. It's fine. I, I can do this. That's just another step. She provides that check and balance. And The experience over the years has taught me that when I see the red light go on, and I always use that analogy, you know, your check engine light goes on and you go, "Ah, you know, it's probably just a sensor. I don't need to check that. And then you break down in the middle of nowhere and go, you know, it was a little bit more than a sensor. It's kind of the same thing if you feel that in your own self that something's not right. And I don't know what it is. I mean, it could be something minor or it could be something major, as was my case two weeks ago. You, you need right away to feel comfortable with whoever you choose to open your heart to to make sure that you can pick up that phone and call right away. And I've had so many people in, in my travel say, well, you know, counseling just didn't work for me. And I'm like, well, how many counselors did you go to? One. Now, that's like getting a bad electrician. It's like, well, you never get an electrician again because the clown you had in didn't know what they were doing. Well, in that profession, there are people who are not very good at what they do or to, to defend them. Also, there are many wonderful people who are clinicians who don't know what we do. They don't know our culture or any specific culture. It's not just because obviously mental health is not just for first responders and we're not the only group that has a challenge with that. The world does. But you can't just try one because really you're writing yourself a permission slip to quit. If that doesn't work, it's like, see, told you, doesn't work. I'm not going to do it. This ends like, no, you have to keep going until you find the right fit. The particular counselor I have, she's not a fit for everybody because she, she doesn't pull any punches. She knows the fire service, though, because her brother was a lieutenant in the fire service. And she remembers him sitting at the dinner table one time talking about tasting the blood of a baby that he had to do CPR. And that's what really motivated her when she was going into her career to look at first responders. So I'm blessed to have that connection. So that that's a that's a major tool for me. The other tool that that really I use the most in a day-to-day thing, because you can't always get into a counselor. They're unbelievably busy now with everything. Um, is I have to do something physical. Now I hurt my back pretty bad when I was taking care of Eileen. I was a long-distance runner. That really was my my almost my drug of being able to bring myself back up. Um, and I had to stop doing that. So I learned to ride, try and ride a little bit more for distance and for time just to push myself. And if I can get out and do that, even if I just get out and go for a four or five mile walk and get out in the, in the sunshine when it's nice, even if it's cold, and get the light. If I can combine those two, I can raise my spirits. I can feel it. I can literally come back and take a shower and go, take a deep breath and go, I got it. I still struggle mightily with sleep. The sleep pattern that I have is just so disrupted. I've tried everything from meditation to medication to setting a certain schedule and it just I still wake up routinely. I don't have any trouble going to sleep. I wake up probably routinely 2 hours into a sleep cycle. Wake up so some of it is being 65. Some of it is you're getting up and you have to go to the bathroom. I get that, but it's beyond that. I'll wake up and be like, okay, I'm ready to go. What I've learned for me is that go back to bed then right away as much as you can. And usually I can fall back asleep. And if you wake up two hours later, don't beat yourself up over, oh my God, I only slept another two hours. Not he- not healthy, not the healthiest. I would give anything to get sleep like eight hours through the night, just once. I can't remember the last time that I ever did that. And I feel it. It's harder to get out of bed in the morning, even especially getting older. It's more of a struggle. Um, again, blessed we're in the summer season. So it's bright here by 5.30 in the morning. And so it's, it's much easier to get going. I dread the winter. Uh, I never was a big proponent of light makes that big of a difference. As I've gotten older, I absolutely see it in me. That when it when it's bright and sunny out again, it could be two below zero like it is here, and that doesn't bother. It, it's like ah, it's bright, let's go. If it's dark and gloomy for twelve days in a row, I really struggle. I see it affect my mood, even if wonderful things are going. on, I get to see my granddaughters, and they come over and jump on me, and and for that time period, I'm reinvigorated. I can easily drop right back down to it once they clear the driveway. So, making sure that during the winter I have things that I'm going to do. I rode outside last year for the first time, probably 90% of the winter. And as long as it wasn't icy, went out, got got an outfit that was to keep me warm enough that I could get by, wipe the ice off of my goggles. And it was, and it really helped me get through the winter. So those two things combined are probably the biggest tools. And then just being honest, I think I, with my family, I you know, hey, I'm not doing real good. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm very blessed with the two boys that I have, I have a great daughter-in-law and I have those grandkids. And, and those are people that I can rely on that I can be me with also. I don't always have to be up. I don't always have to be on. I can just say, yeah, you know, I'm I'm struggling a little bit. Um, I'm not sure why, but I'm, and still always ask, are you, are you going to see the counselor? Yep. Okay, good. Great. Thanks, dad. And, it's a very normal conversation, no different than, you know, I got a nail in my tire. Well, are you going to go get it fixed? Well, yeah, I'm going to go get it fixed because it could be dangerous. Okay, well, did you talk to the counselor? And um, it's really hard when you've you've written this book to give advice to so many people and then not follow it because the people who will call you out are your family. And that's, and that's good for me. It's healthy for me.
0: Well, firstly, with the sleep, um, two things that I'm going to, kind of send you links for one is something that I've used for years now. There's a Navy SEAL that was on the show called Doc Parsley, who was the first man that ever really educated me on sleep deprivation, the acute effects, the chronic effects. Um and he when he, he was he was a working SEAL, he went to med school, came back as the SEALs physician, found out through, you know, long story short, found out they were all on Ambien so was able to change their work days and then created a little cocktail of supplements just pure you know natural vitamin d and magnesium and a little tryptophan um and was able to wean them off this ambien and get them good quality sleep and i've had several of those seals report that very thing so i've had him and obviously some of the people that were were under him um so i'm going to send you the link to that that stuff is phenomenal it's just you make it it's like a tea you just make it in the evening and it initiates the sleep cascade it tells your body all right it's time to go to sleep and that may well help with the quality of your sleep with the longevity the other thing is as a guy i just had on um professor russell foster who is really the 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 father of of a lot of what we understand about circadian rhythms and sleep um his he and his his uh group discovered those receptors in the eye that recognize light and therefore tell the body if it's you know if it's dawn if it's dusk those kind of things and his book just came out in the US so I'll send you a link to that and I'll send you the episode i did with him which is i forget the number now but it was about 10 episodes ago phenomenal phenomenal book and i think that will help you understand and as you said stop beating yourself up about what they call polyphasic sleep which is some people just wake up after the 90 minute cycle um and then i'm sure there's things in there to help you kind of you know navigate that too so just giving you tools i know we're firefighters we love to fix stuff so you know (laughs) i think those you know the, the problem with the pharmaceuticals is they don't help you sleep they make you unconscious you never get yeah. into that deep restorative sleep alcohol is horrendous at you know for your sleep just even a single glass can start disturbing your sleep rhythm so you've got shift workers who then use alcohol to unwind and basically we're just sabotaging ourselves on the only days we actually get to sleep so it's this compounding vicious circle yeah
1: know that'd be good. that would be great I'm open to at this point to to anything that would come down the pike that makes sense in terms of going working with your body because i I feel sometimes when it goes to that whole sleep pattern it's it's almost like i'm working against my own body like well no you know you don't really need to sleep that much yeah we're good it's it's okay in fact the first time there was a major storm um in the in the spring after i had retired um and thunder and lightning and normally our, our town in western springs flooded pretty easily So I would be up and be going in. I literally, I heard a clap of thunder must've woke me up. I literally reached for my portable radio. And instead of my brain going, no, you don't do that anymore. I literally kept fumbling around like, no, it's here. And it took me, I'll bet it wasn't long, but it seemed like an eternity, 30 seconds to go, you're retired. You don't go, they don't, you don't need to go on this. They don't want you there. They got it. And it was the weirdest feeling. And then trying to go back to sleep afterwards, I recounted in my mind how many times we would go on calls like that and come back and your adrenaline was kicking in, the cortisol is going through your system. Of course, we didn't realize it. And, and you're laying there staring at the ceiling going, okay, I'm going to get up in two hours, maybe an hour now, 15 minutes. Okay, that was fun. And then you pushed yourself through the day. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm open to, I, thank you very much. I'd appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. Another thing I want to get to the, the, um, the daylight element as well. But when I was talking to a couple of my dispatcher guests, um, you know, a realization in the conversation was they get this high spike of adrenaline and cortisol the same way as someone in a chief's position would on a large incident let's say pulse. But unlike the police officer, the, the firefighter that is forcing doors and, you know, evacuating people and moving stretchers, we, Boots on the ground responders usually have a a kind of physical exertion that uses that adrenaline, uses that stress. But when you get banged out on a pediatric code and then halfway there, when your heart's through the roof, you get canceled. Or if you're a dispatcher and you're hearing someone choking to death while you're trying to get us to them, or you're a chief trying to navigate, you know, three-trap firefighters, you've got all of that stress, but you don't have that exertion to offload that stress. So that's an interesting perspective I've never really thought about until I started interviewing the dispatchers.
1: I had a chance to do uh, last, I think it was last winter, they kind of blend together, but... Um, our our mutual aid divisions have a conference, and they were kind enough to ask me, "What would you come down and speak to the chiefs?" And I said, "No, I got you know people in Illinois are tired of me. This is Kenny again. We don't need to hear him." But they have a, a breakout that was the dispatchers. So I asked to talk to them, and you, you're right on the button. The feedback I got was incredible. About you know, first of all, very few of their organizations has. Something designed, whether it's an EAP or whether it's a counseling service or even peer support um, for dispatchers only, because and you and boy, you're right on it. I remember back in the early 80s, the department I was on in Hinsdale, they brought in. I was a firefighter. They brought in a young lady that was an exercise physiologist. And I remember she told us, if you go on a call at two o'clock in the morning for a report of smoke in the building, by the time you're in the rig, you're already at full tilt. You're, you're, you're going to war. You've got this. And then you get there and it's a drier vent. She goes, the best thing you could do when you come back to the station is get on the exercise bike for 30 minutes. And we got hysterical. It's like, right. Are you kidding me? I got three kids at home. I'm going to get on an exercise bike at two o'clock. No, I'm not doing it. Oh my God. She, she was right. Like we had no way to dump it. And, and, that listening to dispatchers, the response I got was exactly what you run into, including, and then we never know the disposition. So let's say that we have the child that we're, we're talking to mom through who's choking the dog. And then all of a sudden you hear the firefighters coming in through the door and it's like, she hangs up. Most of the time they don't know did that child make it or not. And so they're living with that feeling of, you talk about taking the cape off, of, of failure. Did, did, I, did I fail at the instructions? Did I give her enough? Did I give her the right sequence? And organizations don't even think about them. And so one of the things we talked about was just, you're all sitting here right now. You all come from different organizations from all through this state. You should start to set up your own peer network of where you can at least start if you can't take care of each other formally, you can take care of each other informally, which is huge. And then you start to build your network of how do we, what professional services do we bring in? Because a lot of, like just any other state, many of our organizations, the departments are volunteers. So they they can't afford to have a, a clinical psychologist on staff to be able to work with their people. And they don't have them for the dispatchers either, but you can do it by getting organizations together and all identifying somebody and vetting them to know they do understand the trauma that those people go through. And they're there for them to reach out to if it's something that they need to. And uh, you're right. I think being able to dump that physically, probably why that physical outlet has always been such a good thing for me, probably pent up stuff in me that I get to get rid of along with the daily stuff.
0: Well, also the daylight. So you were talking about Illinois and having the darker months, obviously coming from England originally, that was something that we dealt with. It was, you know, overcast, you know, probably two thirds of the year. And it wasn't this magnificent rain and storms that we get in Florida. When it was raining, it was drizzle. And, you know, it was just miserable cold. And But it's such a beautiful country full of amazing people. But our weather blows. So... uh When I moved to Florida, you know, I always thought of myself as a solar panel and it was true because I'd worked in um, upstate New York and, you know, lived around the world and when I was somewhere that had a lot of sunshine, I just felt better. You know, I felt like I had more energy and as you were saying, you can have a bad day on a sunny day and it's still a good day. You can have a good day on a gloomy day and it feels like you're depressed. So there's a lot of value, I think, to looking at firstly dispatch, okay, you're you, you work the twelve in the in the daytime. Well, in the winter you go to work and it's dark. You leave the building and it's dark. You've got no windows in your dispatch centre like a lot of them do. And then, you know, so you haven't basically seen sunlight for 24 hours. And we wonder why our dispatchers are so, you know, they struggle so much with their weight. I'm sure there's a a huge mental health crisis probably just isn't discussed very much. But the way that we work our dispatchers is very, very unhealthy as well. We should have, you know, big windows. I get, you know, reflection and screens and that kind of thing. But we should allow them to get as much light as we can because they're in this little cave staring at a screen for 12 hours a day. And
1: I think the other, without a doubt, and you're right. I, it made me flash to think of all the dispatch centers that I've seen, and you're right, most of them are in a bunker. And uh, the other thing that I found in, in listening to them was is that nobody ever checks in on us. I mean, do, do we we do call review, but you might do the call review at the end of the month, or you know, nothing in the immediacy. There's no supervisor training. Least I shouldn't say no, that's bl- too much of a blanket statement. But in very few of the organizations that I talk to, is there like a supervisor w- red light that goes on to go, Boy, at two o'clock in the morning, John took that call about that little boy who wasn't breathing. I need to make sure that I follow up with John today. That's that's and that's a beyond are you okay? Because as you know, my, my line always when I talk to firefighters is don't ever ask a firefighter, Are you okay? because he could be losing an eye and an arm and he said, I got five more minutes, chief. I'm good. Always say, is there anything I can do for you? And by offering that immediately, they may not be ready to talk. They may not need to talk, but you've opened the door for communication that you noticed, you know, and you care. And people then might like two weeks later go, hey, have you got a minute? I need, I need to just kind of run something by you. And you've, you've allowed them to be human. And you've, and you've given them a route for them to express their feelings. Now, it, it, it may, it, you may have great news for them about what happened on the call, but that may not even matter to them because during that time that they're processing, trying to save that life, they're, it, they're traumatized. So they need, may need to just talk about the trauma. Like, I know how to do this. I've done this for 25 years. Why am I second guessing the fact that I don't, didn't remember the ABCs? I didn't remember what, how many compressions they should give no, that's human. So dump it, get it out and go, okay, but here's what the end result was. We've got a good outcome or we've got a bad outcome. And, and you know what? It shows that you had nothing to do with that. This child was, was, was long gone. They were blue when they got there. The parent of course, didn't want to believe that their child was gone. So what got communicated to you was not actually what was on the scene. We don't, you have to formalize that process to expect that it's just going to occur is not. It's just that, it's unrealistic.
0: Absolutely. Well, you touched on obviously writing a book. Um, It's funny because I think we pretty much went through the journey almost side by side and we compared notes along the way. Yours came out um, in 2020, Minded as well. So talk to me about, you know, what made you decide to finally put pen to paper, um, you know, and what that journey has been like for you. And I'd love to hear the audio book side because I know that was the most recent conversation we had was your journey with that.
1: So it there there is no book if Eileen doesn't make me promise literally on her deathbed to write it. And I specifically we've been married for thirty-five years. We've been together for 37 years. And I thought that I could, I mean, here's this poor woman whose brain is literally full of nine tumors and she's on her way to go see the good Lord and she can't wait to go see Sean because she had seen him four days earlier appear in her room and say, Mom, I'm coming to get you. So she's 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 ready to roll. And She's telling me, you know, you need to write this book. And I'm like, okay, I'll just use the right verbiage. I said, well, okay, I promise I'll try to write the book. And she gave me that look that I had recognized many times over 35 years, and it was never a positive look. And it was like, uh uh-uh, not try. Promise me you'll do it. And I did. In the back of my mind thinking, well, if everything I believe is true and when she gets to heaven, she won't be pissed because everybody up there is happy and they don't mind and she'll understand that I can't write a Christmas card. So how the hell am I going to write a book? And so I kind of, I put it away. I just, I couldn't do it in the beginning anyways, because I was just hard enough to get out of bed and, and keep moving. And then I I didn't really want to go down that journey. And I thought I'm still out doing talk. So I'm, it kind of meets the intent and her vision was no, I want you to be able to do less of that. I want you to be able to do less of putting yourself out there. Pretty much how we started the conversation of that emotional journey. She goes, I want a stranger to be able to read your book. I want them to know our son. I want them to know what he went through. I want them to understand mental illness and a physical illness and things you can do and not beat yourself up over it, but try to be as proactive as you can, and then realize that sometime, no matter what you do, how hard you work to save that person, it's not always going to end that way. Some people just decide they can't take the pain anymore. And there's nothing to do with, they don't love their families. They don't love other things that are positive in their lives. They just see black, no hope. And they go through that door. So I had still gone, okay, well, I'm giving this speech so that that should cover it. And then Again, those angels that I believe, I was in the uh, our HR director's office in Western Springs, Ellen Baer, and having a conversation that I can't even remember. And she can't either about what it was about, but it had to do with personnel. It certainly didn't have anything to do with signs. And somehow we got on the topic of signs and started going back and forth. And she said, I have a good friend of mine who's written four books and." they're basically based on the loss of a really good friend she had that got killed in college. And she believes he's her guardian angel. And he has appeared to her a couple of times and she, she wants something really, really badly answered for her in her life. She'll, she'll ask him help me. And the first time she did and he thought she had an answer for what she wanted to do. The song that they both shared loved came immediately on the radio. She's like, is this the right thing to do? Boom. The song comes on. Now, those of you out there listening going, well, that's just a coincidence. You need to know this Irish guy doesn't believe in coincidences. Everything happens for a reason. I, I don't like a lot of the reasons. I don't understand a lot of the reasons, but I believe they do. She believed it. She believed it was him telling her yes, and she ended up making that decision. And it ended up being a good one. She wrote those books, and Ellen said, you need to get together with her and just share your story. So she happened to live in the community, not 15 minutes from me. It wasn't like she was in another state or another country. And so we set up a time to go and we met and it was, it was so awkward. It was like a first date. Um, the first 20 minutes were just like, what am I doing? here? And then we started to get on a roll just to talk about, tell me about your friend that you lost. And, the, and I told her about, Elaine and Sean. And, and then it got to be more of a, like, like we were playing poker, like, well, okay, here, here's, here's my science story. Oh yeah. Well, I got one for you. How about this one? And we kind of one up each other and I got all done. And I said, I'm really glad I came to meet you. And God bless you that you have had the courage to write these books. I don't know how you did that, but I said, my wife made me promise I was going to write a book. I go, you heard my story. I go, I don't have anything to write a book about. I go, people carry crosses all the time and mine are not unique. And there are loads of people, unfortunately, I know who have had it so much worse in life than me, but who would want to read this? And she looked at me and she goes, oh, my God, no, you have to write that book. And I was like, seriously? And she goes, yeah. In fact, I am the consultant that helped me write the book. I want you to call her. So I go, okay. So I waited a couple of weeks, made the phone call, praying like hell when I made the phone call that it would be, no, you don't really... nice story, sorry about your loss, but not really anything about a book. So I sent her a couple of articles I had written about Sean. And, and uh, then I talked to her for about 20 minutes. And I go, so what do you think? She goes, I think we need to get started on this book. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I I wanted to know from your friend. I want to know from you. I want somebody to tell me I don't have anything you of value. And she's like, well, I'm not going to be the one to tell you that. And so we went through the process together. And um, Shannon O'Keefe's her name, she did an amazing job of keeping me on track through the pandemic. Um, and one time in particular in June, I, I finished the book in November, in June, I had decided to quit. I couldn't do it anymore between the pain of, of writing the book, between watching people in the village suffering, because every day was a different story about what was going on and not only worrying about their own safety, but taking it home to their families, um, there was just so much agony and pain. I'm like, I, you know what? I'm going to put it on the shelf. If I pick it up later, I did try, so I can look her in the eye when I get to heaven, if I'm lucky enough to get in there, and go, "Hun, I gave it my best shot. I just couldn't. There were more important things happening." So we normally would have a conference call on a Tuesday. I, this was on a Sunday, and I decided on Monday I'm going to call her and go, "I'm done." So Monday, my phone rings and it's her. I'm going said, hello. I go, did, did I have the wrong day for our, our call? She said, no, we're supposed to talk tomorrow, but I knew I was supposed to call you today. And I go, how'd you know that? So, well, that's what happened last night. In the middle of the night, she goes, I got up to go to the bathroom. And she said, all of a sudden, I heard this large boom, in the house. And she said, it scared the heck out of me. And I had looked before I was going in the bathroom. I saw my son down the hallway. I've got a 20-year-old son, and he was going back into his room. And I So I run into my husband thinking he fell out of bed or did something happen? He's peacefully sleeping. Run down the hall. I check on my son. He's out cold. Uh, Something must have fallen downstairs or worship. Maybe somebody tried to break in. She went down. She looked around. Nothing. Nothing's out of place. She goes, I came back up to bed. My heart's pounding. I laid my head on the pillow. And she said, I heard this voice, a male voice say, you need to call him. She said, now I have loads of other clients besides you. But somehow I knew the him was you why do I need to call you? And I I sat there for a minute and kind of got it together. And I went, did I ever tell you what Sean's nickname was when he was growing up as a little boy? And she said, no. I said, well, whenever we weren't sure where he was, once he started to walk, all you had to do was be quiet for about 10 seconds and you would hear boom. So I said, his nickname was Boomer. And she went, oh my God, Pat, that's the noise. I said, your son. I go, what does he look like? She said, well, he's, pretty well built. he 20 and, you know, just kind of a 20 year old. And I go, so you saw him. I go, did you see his face? She said, no, he had his back to me. He was a shadow. I go, that wasn't your son. I go, that was my son because I go, I'm quitting. I can't do this anymore. And she got emotional on the phone. And she said like, hell you are. She goes, your kid was in my house. She goes, we're finishing (laughs) this book. You take a little bit of a break and then we're going to go back and we are going to finish this. And if that doesn't happen, I would have shelved it and it would have never happened. So we make our way through the book. The book comes out and she said, now you need to do the audible verse. I go, oh, wait a minute. I go, that was not in the promise on the deathbed. Eileen did not say you need to write a book. And by the way, why don't you do the audible verse? And she goes, people... Now, they, the way that they read a lot of times is because they listen. You're going to miss an audience, maybe a younger audience, who really needs to hear this. We need to do the audible version. I go, okay, you hire somebody to do the audible version. And what's that going to cost? And she's like, no, you need to do it. I'm like, No, I'm no professional narrator. I don't know how to do that. And she said, no, this book needs to be in your voice. People need to know. And they'll know. If they're listening and it goes as smooth as hell, that it's a narrator. She so goes, You just need to be you and do the book. So we started the book, started to do that in March and didn't finish it until September because the young firefighter I had, um, Dino, who was just an amazing young man who read the book and, and became part of Sean's team and was all over it. And he did this on the side and was able to do all the specs and everything you need for Audible. He would drive. Usually, it was about a seventy-five minute drive one way to the house. And the only rules were, Chief, you're not the chief when we do these recordings. Some days you're only going to do twenty minutes. I'm like, Are you kidding me? This will take forever. I can go on for hours, as as I'm doing right now. He's like, No, because you won't. The quality won't be good. This is very emotional material in a lot of sections. People won't be able to hear you. Um, so the deal is, you stop when I tell you to stop. Okay. So he was right. I think it was the second time we were recording and I I had to recount some of the things about Sean. I lost it a number of times and got it back enough so that somebody listening to it hopefully sounds like somebody speaking at other than garbled and he goes, you're done. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Well, fast forward to September when we're in the home stretch, literally we're doing the last part of the audible and he comes down with leukemia. Now he's in his mid twenties, oh, healthy as a horse, riding his motorcycle, woke up one morning, in a lot of pain, felt a little dizzy, thought he had an inner ear infection and his balance was off and goes in and he's got an aggressive leukemia growing inside. So he now has to fight for his life for the next couple of months. And I was like, and he's reaching out to me. I'm going, forget it. Go, we're, we're, we're done. This thing you need to, you need to get you well in he continued to fight. Thank God he, he responded to the medication. He's doing well. I've actually got hired on a fire department as a firefighter paramedic because that's what he wanted to be he was full time and did an amazing job finishing the audible version of it. Now, I had to listen to like five minute piece of it in order to get it approved to go to audible. As you know, it's an unbelievable and frustrating process to get it finally out there. And I haven't listened to it since then. So anytime anybody says, yeah, I got the audible version of your book, or I'm going to get it, I always say, Would you do me a favor? Here's my email address. Please give me an honest critique. Cause I go, the five minutes I listened to, I couldn't stand. And so I, I don't want it to be a disaster. And so that's kind of how it morphed into the into doing the audible. And I, and I encourage people if you if you feel more comfortable in that. Realm of, in terms of how you swallow the material that's in the book. I'd love if you if you would send me send something to my website or whatever that with your feedback on it because I'd love to know was I on the right track. You will hear the emotion in it, and that's what's what's wonderful about this young man was the one time I got emotional, but I but I thought I was fairly clear. I said, "Yeah, we need to do that again." He goes, "Hell no, we don't." He goes, "They need to." He goes, "That was that was horrible." He goes. They need to feel that so that it, it's you because then they'll know it's you. You're not an actor. It's, it's definitely you. So he did a, a phenomenal job of, of putting it together. And uh, and I'm glad to have it done. Um, it was if I knew how hard it was going to be, I think emotionally it was harder than the book because to read your own words was to relive every single part of it that was difficult where when I was writing it, I could take a break. I actually wrote probably half the book in the exercise room at the firehouse on the exercise bike. I would dictate into my phone and then send it to myself and then look at it on my laptop and clean it up and try and make sense out of it. And so I had a break. When you're reading those words, it's like getting punched in the nose over and over and over again. And it, it, it took a toll. I'm glad it's done. I had some nice feedback from the few people who have gotten it it's telling me, "Yeah, I'm really, really glad you did this. Um, and a lot of people don't know I did an audible version of it, so it's it's now it's out there in every version and Kindle and the hard copy and the audible, whatever somebody feels like if it's helpful for them, or if they can give it to somebody else they think it might help um, Sean and Eileen would be thrilled about that.
0: Well, I'm so glad that you made that decision to A, do the book in the first place and B, not use a narrator. Um, when I was kind of researching, the the general consensus I got is, you know, if, if you're writing your own story, you should read it. If you've written, which is what my next book is, you writing um a fiction with characters, then yeah, that's when the actors step in. But I've heard a couple of, you know people narrate other people's life story and it's just, you know, well, I was standing at his uh, graveside and, uh, you know, and it's like, no, <laughs> no, no, right. no, no. So, you know, you, I'm so glad you did. And I'll give people just a picture. I was just telling my wife about this the other day. We were recalling this moment sitting in a, in a coffee shop car park in Crescent beach, Florida, when you and I first spoke after we had met at the, uh, Florian, um, symposium. And, uh, you were telling your story and my wife and I, she's in the past, she's out in the front seat and I just got this new car so it has the Bluetooth system so it's coming through all the speakers and we are just weeping listening to you, you know, telling your story and weeping as well and that's what you get from Audible. That's what you don't get. When you read someone's story, you kind of read it in your own voice. You know, you don't know what they sound like so you're going to do that. So when you get someone Especially a story like yours. Mine is a little bit more, you know, stories of my career. But it's not a biography. It's not a. You know, it's not just it's not a hard-hitting story. Period. Um, when you read yours, to hear the emotion, to hear your voice, to hear the pain that no one else can replicate, and and the you know the the hope that no one else can replicate. I think that's what make it makes it so important. As I heard you talking with uh, Jim Bernica and his podcast, if you want to hear the story get audible if you want to then keep referencing the takeaways and the material it might be a good idea to have a hard copy as well because that's the best way to actually kind of delve in and out
1: yeah it's thank you for mentioning that jim did a did a did a great job there's a your cancer survivor and a guy who's got a passion to that's his mission and is just and is one of the the nicest people i've met and just a great character make you laugh all the time and but he the he Spoke to me, and it's funny because the consultant, in, at the end of each chapter of the book, is is lessons learned. I didn't want to do that. I, I fought against that through the whole thing. Going, it's going to sound like a textbook. I don't want this to be a textbook. And she made me do it because she gave me the example. Somebody's going to read the book, and luckily they can't relate to it. They've they not lost a spouse. They've not lost a son. They have not been in a difficult situation where they needed some hope or faith. They don't really believe in anything beyond them. Um, so they put it on a shelf and. And never look at it again. And then three years later, all of a sudden neighbors that they're very close to one of the spouses dies of a heart attack during the night. And they're like, okay, what that guy's saying his book about losing a spouse and they don't have time to read 300 pages, they go to the table of contents. They go to the chapter. They don't have time to read the chapter. Even if the chapter is only seven pages, they go to the lesson learned and go, Oh yeah. Don't say the following at the wake. Just give a hug. Here's, here's some things that you want to, are things you can do to help. She goes, They'll use that book. So I, I always tell her when I go somewhere and somebody compliments me on the lessons learned, which happens every freaking time I go someplace. In fact, the last one in Franklin, I said to the person, did my consultant call you and tell you to say that? So I have to call her again and go, you did, you did good. It, it's, the, it's the flip side of having something in your hands to look at. And I'm glad, I'm thrilled that as usual, listen to somebody who knows what they're doing better than you that she pushed me to do it because I've, I've had people say that. And you're right, you'll still hear those in the audible. But if you, if you like what you heard in the audible and you want a reference for later or a reference for somebody that you think is really struggling and maybe not ready to listen to it, then the book serves that other purpose. So it, it, in both ways, it, it's worked out well.
0: Now you cover a host of topics on on mental health on on grief on growth etc um and obviously you know the actual metaphorical cape itself one area I want to delve in a little bit that I didn't hear you delve with with Jim because obviously you know I don't want to pull you through all the same questions that he already addressed to you um is actually being the parent of a child who is going through mental health issues my son um went through a period of, of uh, depression and through some horrendous mishandling of his school and the school resource officer ended up being Baker Acted, a three-day hold. He hadn't done anything but cry. That's all he did. So he had this issue already. Now he's, you know, completely against all protocol, locked away for three days, which compounded it. So that was something that I had to navigate as a parent and then watch my son. Um But, you know, there wasn't thank goodness as you said that terminal depression that that deep deep depression that some children find themselves actually considering or even um, completing suicide so talk to me about some of the principles that you offer to parents that you know whether it's identifying whether their children are struggling and then some of the tools that you give for people to to navigate that
1: i think the first one and you hit on it right away that that i see with with parents, and, and I don't think it's some people say it's generational now, it's helicopter parents, or you want your kids to, you know, there can't be anything wrong with my kid because they're, you know, they're my kid. Is mental illness, it, is, it's a physical illness, which means you can have it at any point in your life. So Sean was, was diagnosed at five with clinical depression. Um, and the only reason he was diagnosed that early was because of Eileen. She saw he was coloring everything in black. Uh, He would he had Velcro shoes, and before he went to kindergarten, literally, and I kid you not, um, he would do each shoe 50 times, 50 times exactly each shoe. If you interrupted that, he had what I called a temper tantrum. I now realize was a panic attack. She saw that and had the courage to take him to the family physician again, where we were blessed, so we had a family physician who didn't go, ah, it's just a stage they're going. He's going through, you know, he's got, he's a headstrong kid. It's like no. That's not normal. So I want you to go to a specialist, took him to a child psychologist who says, yeah, he's, he's depressed. He's clinically depressed. So we need to give him some medication and we need to send him for counseling. And, 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 and this is, his, as my counselor said, when your child at that age is diagnosed like that, it's going to be a lifelong process. No different, however, than if he had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 5. It's a lifelong process, something you have to manage, something you have to stay on top of. But it's not a death sentence and it doesn't make you any different than any other five year old kid. Too many parents wait until things get out of control. Um, They notice all of a sudden their child is is drinking excessively or into illegal drugs or whatever. They're like, what the hell just happened? Not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, they're self-medicating because They're in this horrendous pain and they don't have a clue what it is because they're not talking to anybody, not even to their friends and nothing's being done about. So the first thing I always say is if your gut tells you that there's something different going on with your child, then you need to take them in and have a professional evaluate them just like you would anything else. If you noticed they were walking with a limp or you noticed that they were complaining of severe headaches, you wouldn't think twice about taking them in, but you Think about it twice if you think that maybe they're depressed or they're anxious or whatever. And especially in today's environment, and, and I know a little bit about what your boy went through. Today's environment is just—I wouldn't want to be a kid today. I hate to admit that. I'd like to be young today, but I wouldn't want to be a kid because between social media and the things that are out there, uh, it used to be that you know, you know, I when I was a little kid, I was heavy. When you're pet and you're fat, it's not real pleasant. But the worst thing that could happen is one kid passing the note to another going, hey, that's Fat Pat. Now I would be in front of a thousand people, you know, in a matter of seconds being being mocked and you have to read it and deal with it. So I think you have to have your antenna up as a parent about what's the environment you're in. Then you need to be the advocate for your child and your child needs to know you're the advocate. So no child, when you start to suggest maybe we should go for counseling is going to give you a gold medal. Instead, they're going to push back. I don't need that. You're punishing me. This is a waste of money. It's a waste of time because you have to realize where they're coming from. I mean, you're a kid growing up no matter what generation. Um, you don't think you're tall enough. You don't think you're strong enough. You don't think you're cute enough. You don't think you wear the right clothes. I mean, you go through all that normally. So they don't want to be zeroed out is that, you know, or stand out rather that there's something different. So, you have to be their advocate. And by, by that, I mean you have to be completely honest listen, we're, we're going to go because here's what I'm seeing, and what, what, whether it's behavior or lack of performance or whatever it is. And it's not you, because I know you. You got a great heart, you got a great soul. I'm so proud of you. That word proud is incredibly important to continue to say to a child who's struggling with mental health issues. I, when the talk I did last week, and a, and a woman come up to me, and, and I, I almost get emotional thinking about it, um, whose dad came home as a Vietnam vet with a lot of PTSD and ended up with a lot of um, self-medicating and substance abuse and everything. And she said, you know, the one thing you said in your talk today, it struck me. And then she got very emotional. And she said, and it's the most important thing. You told Sean's story, and then you said... People ask you, are you angry with him that he died by suicide, what it did to your wife and your sons and and your family and friends? And I always say, hell no, I go, I'm as proud of him as I could be because he fought like hell. She said, "He needed to hear the word proud. So you need to tell them, love them, proud of them. This is just a hurdle that we need to figure out how to make it easier on you because life's not easy for you now. You can tell me that it's not. So we're going to go try and here's kind of the ground rules. And this is, I think, what's important to be, regardless of any age that they're at, that you have to express to them is, we're going to try this. There's no guarantee that the first person you sit down with is going to be a match. You may go in and come out and go, that didn't work. I, I, I you know, he's he's a goof, uh, she's over the top, whatever. whatever. No, if, if the first one doesn't work, it doesn't mean the process doesn't work. And it doesn't mean that you still don't need it. It means it didn't work for you. And I'm okay if you tell me 15 times in a row that didn't work. I don't care about the money we spent. I don't care about anything. We're going to try the 16th or the 17th. We're going to keep going until we find an advocate for you to help you through this journey in life. And we will stand behind you for whatever that person says. We're going to work as a team. There's going to be you and us as we've always been a team, but now we're going to add a team player to it. We're going to add a consultant, somebody who's a special advisor who knows things that we don't know, because we as parents <clears throat> don't know how to help you. And it's the and then the other part of expressing and being totally honest with them. and it makes us feel like shit. We can't help you, and we're watching you struggle. And it someday when you're a parent, you'll understand it. But it's horrible. So this is just as much for us as it is for you. So please give us a chance as a team to be stronger. We don't want to be yelling at each other all the time. You don't want to be locked in your room away because you don't you feel like you don't belong or you don't want anything to do with us we want this to be the most positive environment it can be and we want you to grow up to be as happy as you can be and in order to do that this is a step that we need to take so please meet us halfway and then you communicate as the process is going on not overriding you have to because it's hard really really is hard as a parent especially when they're when they're over 18 and the counselor's like yeah i really can't tell you anything. i mean if they're going to do harm to themselves. Yes. But otherwise really can't share any of that. I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. We're paying you and we need, we'd like to know what's going on so we can be more helpful. It's like, no, but your kid tells me in in, in that privacy is, is it's very, very, it's that sanctity that we're, I'm not going to violate. So I can't professionally, but they're not going to do it morally either. And, And being okay with not knowing really hard. Really, really, really difficult, but if you trust that person, you know they have a better shot of getting your child, especially if their illness is, is severe. It's a much better shot for them to make it out on the other end than you would be able to do as a parent. As Eileen always said, if love could have saved Sean's life, he'd still be here. It's nothing to do with how much you love them or care about them. It has to do with getting the right person who can provide the information to them where they see results whether that's with medication and, and therapy or therapy alone, however it is, if the child doesn't see that there's a benefit to them and they don't see hope at the end of the tunnel, that's what got snuffed out for Sean. At the end, there was no hope. Everything was black. All it was, was as they told us at Mayo Clinic, he wakes up every day, not deciding should he take his life today, but he wakes up every day, making the decision to continue to live in that pain and. As a parent, understanding that doesn't mean you like it. it, it, It's devastating. But you understand the fact of what they're going through and go, okay, this is what's best for them. Not necessarily for me. It will be in the long run. But in that moment, it's a struggle. Please take your cape off and hand it to somebody else. You know better than me. You protect my child. You help them get through it. and, And I'll back you. And I think it's that fear to admit. And I always wonder, and I don't know, this is not scientifically proven. I'm not speaking about any data or any research that's out there. But I unfortunately get emails from parents whose kids were incredibly successful in high school and go away to college. Their dream, they go away someplace far away from home where they don't have to deal with mom and dad. They can actually feel like adults. and, And the next thing, four or five months into it, they take their life. And it's like, whoa, what the hell just happened here? This is a well-adjusted, very intelligent, loads of friends at the college of their dreams. And what happened here? Well, my theory in a lot of cases is there was probably something underlying there that was going on that nobody knew about and you wouldn't have known about. You can't beat yourself up over that. But they went from a very protected, positive environment where everything kind of went right. And now you put them sitting alone in a dorm room at two o'clock in the morning, and they're about to flunk the first class that they have ever flunked in their entire life, maybe the first failure they've ever had in their entire life, and they don't, they don't know nowhere to go because you haven't set up a system for them to know how to call, basically call 911 for them. And so that hope cycle goes down the drain a lot faster than it would normally, and all of a sudden... They're sitting in the dorm room going, I got two decisions. Do I want to still stay alive or do I figure out how I'm going to take my life? Because I don't want to be like this for the rest of my life. And we miss that segment. I always challenge parents when you're going away to look at colleges. Um, The firefighter in me goes, You know, take a look around the frat and sorority and find out do they have smoke detectors? Is it a sprinkler building or are they going to be upstairs in an attic where there's no way out? Um, Ask that question, but also ask if my child at two o'clock in the morning, feels devastated about something and does not want to call home and let mom and dad down because that's how they're picturing it. Can they get somebody at two o'clock in the morning, a person on the other end of the line, and somebody who's going to help them right away? Not say, we'll call back at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, or they get a, a recording that says office hours are nine to five Monday through Friday. Find that out. Doesn't mean hopefully your kid's not going to do it. College kids, incredibly, because they come from some varied backgrounds, have a lot of resiliency and and do their own peer support without realizing they're doing it in so many different cases that it's really successful. And you never even know that some child was sitting there in the room thinking that maybe I don't want to be alive anymore. But as a parent, if you want to feel like you're going the extra step and you're anticipating what's going to happen, ask that question. Because if they can't answer it for you, I don't think that's where you want your kid to go. Whether you think they're incredibly well-adjusted, or you think they're struggling and, or know that they have a mental health challenge, you want to make sure that they've got a life net and it's a tight, thick covers everything. And because otherwise it's a setup for failure. And I think we we miss that part of it routinely. And then people are shocked when something happens and it's not their fault, not their fault as parents. And it certainly isn't their, that child's fault. It's the situation dictate that hope evaporated very, very
0: quickly. I'm so glad that I asked that question because I've never had that explanation of that kind of age range suicide, you know, um, vulnerability before. And it reminds me of one of my guests, Emma Benoit. She was, I mean, drop dead gorgeous, blonde cheerleader from Louisiana, really sweet personality and she shot herself 18 years old 17 or 18 um survived her suicide attempt ended up in a wheelchair and she's on this road to you know trying to overcome that that um uh, that paraplegia and get back on her feet again but things that we don't think about exactly like you said which is a brand new thing to me i'd never really put that loss of tribe in a college setting before in my mind and it makes perfect sense but one thing emma reported apart from, you know, the, the regular high school pressures because, you know, just because you fit, you, know, you check boxes of what should be the popular person doesn't mean that you're actually feeling that inside. But also, you know, it's it's weird for me because when England, we graduate at 16. So whether you're an, a 16-year-old English kid or an 18-year-old American kid, to, to basically have a system that's set up so when you hit 18, you get given a piece of paper and you're like, all right, now, you know, Go find a career. I mean, when you take a step back and think about that, someone's already somewhat fragile, and they just haven't had that epiphany yet of what they want to do. How many of us knew the profession that we wanted to enter when we were 18? So either you have that crisis around the high school age and or you go to some college, realize you don't want to be there, you've lost your tribe, all those people you spent four years in high school with, Now you're alone in a dorm room, which I've been there. I totally understand that. Um, and if you don't find that new purpose for me, ironically, when I went to university, it was taekwondo, it was martial arts. I fought for the school and that was my new tribe that, that kept me, you know, on track. But a lot of us, I think I've talked about this at all myself. You get in a a degree program, you're like, wait a second, this is shit. (laughs) This is not going to put me on the path of what I want to do. You know, I did sports science, which was awesome. But it wasn't preparing me to become a great coach. It was to be a lab coat studying athletes and it was myopic what I was learning. So then you have this crisis of, well, I'm going to be X amount of thousands of dollars in debt, which is what's so laughable about this kind of loan forgiveness argument that's going on when we're just financially killing our children and then... The adults of the world are saying, how are we going to forgive them 10,000? Well, you know, you charged them a hundred grand just to get the piece of paper that society told them they needed to have. Because (laughs) we're we're, literally, I looked it up, we're the most expensive university system on the planet. So we're setting them up for even more mental health issues, you know? So you have that compounding element. And as you said, where, you know, whether their home is 10 miles down the road or a thousand miles across the country, there's that sense of isolation. And you know you can be how many people commit suicide in or you know complete suicide in the city of New York, surrounded by millions of people and feel crushingly lonely. So that is such a profound perspective that you've just given us.
1: I think that, um, and I had it just happen recently. In fact, I just had it happen a week ago. And I asked this gentleman. I told him I was going to be on with you, and I, I we had an email conversation because one of the. Southern Illinois University, Lindsay Laycox, who runs a, a program there for a master's in, in leadership, which is interesting when we're talking about what are you really educating people with or not. Had the courage last year to say, I want to uh, mandate that one of the, the books that they read in the class is your book. Um, not going to test them on it. Said, I'm, I want them to read it. and He, he said, then would you could come on a Zoom and just kind of answer questions. And two things happened during that that made me realize that because a lot of people talk about when you go into the military, like if you're lost at 18 and, and you're, you're a soul that's got yourself in trouble because you're just a typical kid and, and you go in the military, you hear these incredible success stories of men and women who come out and go, wow, that really shaped my life. And it, and, and it has. And they were in the right frame of mind and the right things worked for them. And, and it was a great experience. Other people, not so much. This one veteran was on, was happened to be on there. He was now out of the military. He had, a, I remember, a 10-year-old and an eight-year-old. He's probably in his mid-30s. And um, on the Zoom, he said, Chief, I have to tell you, he said, um, started to read your book because um, I was made to for the course. And um, my wife finally came into me and said, why are you crying all the time? You, you don't you don't normally cry. and You keep crying during this book. What the hell is in that book? And he said, I realized that every time I was ordered to go to one of my comrades, deaths, who died by suicide, I was angry. I despised them as cowards. You left us behind. You weren't tough enough to get through it. And he goes, and every time I read more and more about this book, I realize how wrong I was. I had no idea how sick they were and what they were going through. And he goes, and the guilt I feel about who was I to judge them like that, he goes, I'm not going to raise our kids feeling the way I felt. I'm going to raise our kids about this is an illness and we need to be respectful and, and honorable towards them. And, it, and his perspective blew me uh, just blew me away in terms of what he, he picked up in regarding, okay, where do you think you're going to go with your life? And you think you're given principles when you do that, whether it's in school or in the military. And, and sometimes those principles then come in direct conflict with real life. And it's like, okay, so what's the true story? have I really done a 360 about whatever the issue is? And and the answer most of the time is no. Well, he continued to do this class. He just sent me this last week. And so they're doing it this semester. And again, he's having his students read the book. And so this this young man sent him back, already read the book, wasn't supposed to read it until October, read the book already, sent him back what was part of the assignment was just give me a quick recap of what you thought of the book. But then he added in here, and, I, and I'm going to read it to you, and I get, got his permission to do it. He even said use his name, which I'm not going to do, but um, said, this book led me to being honest on the IAFF mental evaluation during our annual physical. I ended up referred to a therapist who was recommended to get EMDR therapy for things that occurred more so in the past rather than on the job. I was diagnosed with type 2 PTSD. Some of that trauma that I ended up going through as a kid was losing my mom to cancer at the age of 10 losing a girlfriend to suicide when I was 19, having a best friend hit by a car and killed when we were 22, and losing my father to cancer when I was 26. Well, I thought I was tough and was making it through just fine, what this book taught me is that I wasn't fine. It also taught me that it's okay to not be okay. I began getting treatment this last week, and I'm on leave of absence from work. This was honestly one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. I've never felt better, and I'm on a good path that's going to allow me to grow even more. No longer worried about what people think, even if it pertains to the controversial subject of mental health. This is thanks to being introduced to the book. And I, I, I made it through reading it this time. It's the first time I sobbed the first time I read it because that was Eileen's vision, is there are so many people out there walking around thinking that there's something wrong with them. And many of the systems we have in our world, they perpetuate that. you've always got to be the climb. And I'm always, I've always was one aim as high as you can go as high as you can. And if you've given it your best shot, it doesn't make, it doesn't matter if you don't get there, but at least aim that high. But we perpetuate more of, well, if you don't get there, you're probably more of a loser. And this poor kid, when I, I read what he had gone through, I didn't even get to the part that he had gone for therapy. Like, how the hell could you not be traumatized with everything he went by the time he was just 26? We don't, build that into the normal growing up process to go, life's not fair. It's just not. It's not any, any, any of all the religious books that have been written by, I don't care which faith it is, it, that fair word's not in there. It's not promised to anybody. So we don't take kids from the time that they're little and teach them that life's not going to be fair. You're not always going to be the best. You're not always going to be the popular. You're not always going to be happy. And bad things are going to happen somewhere along the line. So what do we do when it happens? What do you do? What are, the, what are the tools I can give you as a young child, as a junior high child, as a high school kid, as a college kid, as a son who now has his own family, what, what's available to you to be able to reach out? And truly, that, that, the, the tunnel that's always got to be open has got to be that communication. And you have to be okay with some of the times what you hear, you're not going to like to hear But if you react to that and you shut that down, now they're alone. And whether they physically are alone sitting in a dorm room or whether they're, as you put very well, standing in the middle of of Manhattan with thousands of people walking by them on the street, they still feel alone. And once you cut that off, now that hope stream that normally comes into us naturally, the faucet starts to get tighter and tighter and tighter. And there's less and less and less of it in Whether we like it or not, it becomes the choice of, do I stay like this or do I go? And for for some people who are in such a struggle and in that kind of pain, there really is no choice for them. And so the judgment needs to go out the window because you don't know what it was like to walk in their shoes and you don't know what it was like at that last moment where they were like, can't do this anymore. Um, Powerful stuff. And I'm so thankful to this young man to send this to me and go, because I did, I, I literally said out loud, Oh my God, Eileen, it's your vision. It's exactly what you thought was supposed to happen. And of course, your stupid husband who was going to fight the fact that he shouldn't do it. just like, I shouldn't put lessons learned at the end of the chapter. I should listen to when I don't think I want to do it and just do it. She was right. She was right. Like she always was. And uh, I said, if it, if he was the only one that read that book, it would make all that effort worth everything that we did
0: hundred percent. I want to hit on a couple of things that you said because they, you know, they resonate and they, they're things that I talked about before as well. The first one, as you know, most people would, would, would admit that they thought seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago that suicide is cowardice. How could they do that to their family? Yeah. This whole conversation, um, as I've now six years into this this podcast, heard so many people who were right there, either about to you know to enact the plan for taking their own life, or some people, as I said with Emma or Kevin Hines, that literally went through with it and just survived. It, there's a couple of really strong reoccurring themes, real common denominators. One, of course, is suffering. I want the suffering to end, and that, and that's a given. But the lesser understood one. And this, what I see now, it terrifies me because all the kind of compounding elements are there in the fire service, in law enforcement, in dispatch, in corrections, um, is you take someone who, when they walk through the front door of you know our profession, seemingly are, are doing okay. And then you add all these different layers, the sleep deprivation, the organizational stress, the, you know, the, the things that we see and do. And then as I'll talk about in a second, the unseen childhood trauma, what we brought into the profession, the brain starts becoming, as you said, that there's an illness, no different than obesity and diabetes and hypertension. You give the body bad food and no rest and recovery. It will break down. It will start to become disease. And so what you hear is a shift from. Um, you know, service and, and, and sacrifice in, in a healthy mind way to that being shifted to, I am a burden to the ones that I love. And by taking myself away from them, by, by taking my own life, they will be better off. Now, to a healthy, well slept mind, that makes zero sense at all. Sadly, this was perfectly illustrated recently in, in Florida where we had a couple, both were police officers, a man and a woman. The man took his own life. And I think it was about seven days later, the female officer took her own life and they left behind a brand new infant baby. And so everyone's like, what the hell? You know, how could they be so selfish? Blah, blah, blah. What a powerful statement of, what was probably happening in their head and you know, the first one and the second one of course there was grief but there was like the world would be better off without me and so when we talk about, you know, suicide people are like, oh yeah, think about your family that's, to me, that's that's the worst advice The the thing that I think we should be having out front and center is if you are starting having thoughts that you are a burden to the ones that you love that is your sign that is your red flag to find that counselor find that peer find that whoever whoever you are going to talk to that is your crisis point because that doesn't make any sense and that is when the the miswiring of the brain is so bad as i always say you know that hand that stops you getting too close from the roof of a tall building that hand starts sliding to the back of you and pushing you towards the edge so i never hear that mentioned when you When you feel like you're a burden, that should be one of our massive, massive alarm bells that someone is starting to slide down towards, you know, suicide ideation beyond.
1: The first time that I understood or kind of understood how Sean could have got to where he got to on that day was I was out out at the National Fire Academy and Dr. Thomas Joyner, who does a lot of um, research on because he lost his dad to suicide. And did it for first responders. And he has a a theory. There's loads of theories out there now, but the commonality of all of them is is that you do lose hope. But interestingly enough, his three prongs that come, first of all, he say first responders are at a higher risk level than other people because you've already made a conscious decision that your life is not the most important thing in the world, that you will put your life on the line for another viable life. And if you lose your life in the pursuit of doing that, it's noble and it's what you should have done. So this feeling of like, well, my life's going to be the most important thing. I'll fight to the death is really, it's, it's secondary for you. The other two components is a feeling of you don't belong. So you think about all of the, as you're growing up and, and the challenges of being a child and then especially starting to go through puberty and junior high and high school, it don't belong. I don't fit. And so I, I applied the first two to Sean, which said, okay, first of all, if he, he obviously wasn't a first responder. So Dr. Joyner said, that in lieu of that feeling of you took this oath and everything, is constant attempts that don't, you don't complete what Sean had done. So you've already gotten close to going, my life's really not that important. So, so that component comes in the door that way. And they, they feel like they don't belong. Sean said to me, how many other 20 year olds, Dad, do you know that have been hospitalized like six or seven times, that have had ECT nine times, that have had, on these medications, that they can't remember things, that that I'm, I'm kind of a an albatross out there, and the last one in his theory is feeling like you're a burden, and so he said you see that so much where that that feeling of like how could you ever feel like they'd be better off than you is people literally do feel like I'm a burden. I don't I don't belong anymore, and so, so that common thing that was always said to me by firefighters who had retired, I'm like, hey, why don't you come back and stop in for a cup of coffee? We don't belong anymore, okay? And then the feeling of like, well, that's just a burden for you to have to break down. I should be doing training, but you're going to take a, you feel sorry for me, so you sit down and have a cup of coffee. They lose their identity. So we see so many retirees that are at risk and commit and end up completing rather suicide because that very reason is, I'm a burden to my family now. They have to worry about checking on me. They have to take me to a doctor's appointment. That's not what I want. And I don't belong. I don't, I don't fit. Lost my, as you said, I've lost my tribe. And all of a sudden now we've got that circle completed. So I, I think, I love the way you put that. That's that if somebody's explaining that to you, that they feel like they're a burden, then that is a red flag. For me, also, the other one is, you know, I don't really belong. I don't fit here. I don't have any friends. I don't have any people with common interests. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. We need to let's let's go talk to somebody about that, because that's you never say that's not true, because people will say to me, well, if I knew he was going to do that, I would have challenged him with. Well, why? why? Look what you've got and all these wonderful things. You've got a great wife and you got a great career and you got. all. No, don't do that because they don't see that. That may be real, but they don't see that. It's not their reality. So you're fighting uphill on a battle. You're going to lose. You're going to meet them where they are, in the darkness, in the pain. I can't imagine it being the pain you're in. Let's see if there's a way to get you out of that pain before you make that final decision that you can't go back and rectify. And we're, we we don't do that. We, we become either angry or we become polyamorous. Yeah, and so you're just having a bad day. Maybe. Or maybe you've had a bad day for the last three years and you're about to have your last I It's I think it's just being
0: realistic. Yeah. Well, what do you think as well? And it's such a hard concept to get your head around. But if you now think of that selflessness that you have in the first responder profession, and now they have this absolute 100% belief of burden, then it is a selfless act to complete suicide and so when you say think of your family you you kind of like you know pushing them further in so by you know a, listening to that burdensome element and as you said that that not fitting in which of course completely parallels you know school all the way through to the first responder, and i think it's a compounding element of you know why a, why a bad crew in a fire station is so you know cancerous why bad leadership in a fire department is so cancerous but you know Telling someone think about your family doesn't work if they are thinking about their family, and that's the very reason that they're going to take their own life. Because in their, you know, new world, this 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 distorted world through all these compounding elements that made their brain brain sick, that's exactly what they're thinking of, and it's selfless, and they're terrified probably. But I'm doing it for them, as you said, I'm making that sacrifice because in this this reality that I'm in at the moment, this sleep deprived, you know, maybe medicated reality this is the best thing for my beloved wife and my darling children.
1: Totally. I mean, how many times you will hear when, when notes are left um, and notes aren't always indicative of what the person was really thinking. Cause they're in such a bad state, but a lot of times the, the farewell will be, this is not your fault and you'll be better off without me. And, and it's heartbreaking because when somebody reads it, they're like, no, that's, I had a chaplain that she, she was great. She was an ER nurse before she got into the pastoral ministry. And she, we were having an after action for what had been a a death by suicide. And she said, I hate doing suicides. She told the group assembled, she said, because everybody wants to know why. And she said, but here's what you need to know. She goes, if I brought that person back right now and sat them in the middle of the room and they very articulately told you, here's why we did that here's what is the 100% answer that every one of you would give to that person. Not good enough. That's not a good enough reason. We could have helped you. We could have saved you. We could have done something. So she said, even if you knew the why, if you won't accept that and it won't make you feel better, then don't worry about the why worry about what you're going to do to help make things better for their family and what you're going to do going forward to see if you can create an environment that's more accepting of people who are struggling. And I just looked at her like, I, I didn't need to write damn some book. I could have just used the two sentences you came up with because it, it's a great way of putting it is you can't argue with them when they're in that position. You have to meet them where they're at and then try to get them to see that don't don't give up, give it one more shot. Let's try this and see if it makes you feel better and realize that if eventually it doesn't, if they truly do believe their burden, then then they're going to complete it. And, and don't look down on them, then just realize the incredible pain that you hope you've never been through. And honestly, I, and I can say it, and maybe it was the best reason for the experience I had. When I was 14, laying there in that grave next to my dad, I, my mom, my godmother who loved me more than probably my mom or anybody in the world, I never thought about what it was going to do to them if I had completed that suicide. I never, it never crossed my mind at all. It was like, my world is dark. My dad is someplace else. I believe he's there. I want to go be with him. And I don't care how much trouble I get in. And if it ends up, it's all bullshit. And there really is another place. At least I'm not going to feel the way I feel right now. So I can say as somebody who said there, I never once thought about, oh, my God, what is it going to do to them? So the, the whole selfish thing, yeah, I could I could go off for a long time on that one. It's just, it's just not true. It's a convenient way to make sense out of an act it's just so desperate that you can't wrap your arms around it unless you're the person sitting in that pain.
0: Absolutely. Well, I one thing I talk about all the time and I won't go down that road. I think we we talked on about it the first time, but um in the fire service specifically, if we don't address the work week and bring it down to, you know, a reasonable amount of of rest and recovery rather than working our men and women to the ground, we're never going to fix this issue in the fire service. But one in my opinion, almost immediately actionable thing that we can start doing is kind of an aha moment I had probably about a year ago now. I had a kind of unusual lens because I worked for four different departments. So that was four different hiring processes three of which had a polygraph all four had those crazy psycho psychological tests with the hundreds and thousands of questions that you check and you know it's it's i've said this a million times but you know do you like dogs do you like flowers do you like rabbits do you like touching children do you like sleeping you're like whoa, whoa, whoa wait what was that so you know so they're they're both ridiculous right. you research polygraph it's smoke and mirrors to get you to admit to something that's all it is um then the psych tests are completely ridiculous as well so we're you know departments are spending thousands per candidate on those things alone you're already doing a background check so one idea that i can i would love to put to the fire service in general take that same exact budget stop doing those psych tests stop doing the the polygraphs take that same money do a background check you either want that person or you don't if you bring them on they pass all your other tests then from day one, they're going to be PTing, they're going to be, you know, tying ropes and knots and pulling hoes and throwing ladders, put them also through a series of counseling sessions interwoven, whether it's in the orientation process, whether it's the probation year, whatever it looks like, because no one discusses what happened to that man or woman before they stood on the drill ground in their uniform on day one. And as you just touched on, that one individual that wrote to you, all the traumatic events that had happened to him, He carried that, you know, wheelbarrow three quarters full through the front door of the fire service. So if we're not addressing that, we're missing a big piece of the puzzle and then compounding it with, you know, these horrendous work hours that we're doing at the moment. So that would firstly give all these candidates a chance to offload any, it may may not be immediately, but begin to start addressing and, and have that conversation. Like there are things that you're bringing through the front door. Let's start talking about your formative years and walk through and then you've now created with a, count, a relationship with a counselor from day one. So you start having some bad calls or relationship issues or financial troubles or whatever it is. You already can talk to Mary or Steve or whoever it is. And that carries through your career the same way as, you know, ironically, it was Sean's counselor that you had as your go-to person. So that's something that I would love to see. It wouldn't cost an extra cent and just reallocate the funds from these two smoke and mirror ridiculous things that we do to box check in the fire service that really doesn't cover your ass at all and certainly doesn't sift the good ones from the bad ones, and instead apply it to proactive counselling from day one as a brand new recruit.
1: I I couldn't agree more, and and I've taken it a step farther when when I've talked to different fire chiefs organizations and said when you do your orientation before the person ever even fills out an application, Do you speak to mental health? So all of you recruit. And again, you know, what's our profile of a firefighter? You know, you spend loads of money on on here are all the values they have, blah, 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 blah. The bottom line is if they're good people, they're going to come because they care. They really do want to make a difference. They really are going to open their heart to complete strangers. Okay, so we recruit those people in every country, in any language. It's all the same. And then we expose them to the absolute worst things that you could ever see. And we're shocked that it bothers them. So we don't even in the orientation as they're sitting there with their significant other go, you know, this isn't Chicago fire. It's not backdraft. It's not, that's not the real world. But the real world is you're going to be exposed to some bad things that nobody else wants to or should have to deal with. And when that happens, it's going to affect you. It's not a matter of if, it's when it's going to affect you. And then what we're going to do when it does is we're going to provide the following things to take care of you and your loved one. and and lay out all the resources that you have. Because my theory is, at that point, the person can go, whoa, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. I don't want to be exposed to that. I don't want to be around that. I don't want, okay, no problem. You can gracefully back out. Once you get hired and they hand you that cape. There is nobody that I know, even people that we've had to say during a probationary period, you know, this isn't just working out. You, you're not, you can't do this job safely. Who's not going to fight you on it? Because you're not, you look at that as a failure, as opposed to doing an objective evaluation and going, I'm not set for what this is going to do to me. And that exactly rolls in what the experience the person is bringing through the door oh my God, you know, I, don't, I I lost a little sister who died. I don't want to be going into somebody's house and have a four-year-old there who died. You know, that's going to remind me of my little You give them a chance to go on their own terms. And we don't do that. And, and I'm finding it's getting more desperate because in the fire service now, I'm seeing where you, you've got tests run for wonderful jobs and what used to be 300 men and women showing up for one spot, now you're getting three. And, and maybe two of them don't, don't pass the background check. So we're getting more desperate desperate to bring people in, so are we going to then not be as sensitive to maybe you shouldn't be doing this in the first place? So as the person bringing them in, I care enough about you before I even know you to take care of you, or do I just bring you in and then you're another body and we don't have anything in the process? And then I absolutely agree with you. Then it needs to be followed up in the academy. That When they're going through the academy, just like they do a section on forcible entry and ladders and SCBA, there should be one on mental health. And not responding to a mental health call, but your mental health. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to deal with what if the isolation occurs in the academy? You're halfway through the academy and you get a call. Your mom's just diagnosed with cancer. And now you're stuck between, do I leave the academy? to take care of her. She's so proud of me being here. Or do I stay and finish it, but then I'm I'm losing these valuable hours with her? Um, It can happen right there, too, in the middle of it. And so do we make it normal? to have that on your radar and do we provide them with the knowledge of what the resources are from the very moment we have contact with them and for most of us in our careers the only time we became aware of it was when somebody was in desperate need and sometimes it was way too late
0: absolutely well thank you for that perspective as well i want to hit on one more area before we go some closing questions and and, and wrap up but we opened talking about you know the the spiritual element and signs and this is something that i've witnessed i actually wrote about um i think it was the opening chapter in my book uh on on a call that i literally saw a spirit and i'm not you know a devout christian or any specific religion but i saw a body that was completely not viable anymore and a spirit that spoke to me and my partner so my medic partner was there too so i wasn't losing my mind um and it was absolutely crazy but my wife lost her boyfriend before me to suicide. And I've witnessed lights coming on. And, you know, the, the, you so talked about the boom. I remember the sound of, of sound like a marble dropping on a glass table. And then we went in there and there was nothing, zero that could have made that that noise. So I watched Danny turn um, my my bonus boy, my stepson's you know, bedroom lights on and off. And then when Becky basically kind of spoke to him and said, hey, you, he's, you're scaring him. That never happened again. So... I truly believe in something greater. I truly believe in, in you know, the, the energy, the spirit from a life doesn't just go away. But one of the things that I, I struggle with, you talked about the right fit with counselors. I mean, I, I look at it as music or art or comedy. You know, I, I remember being on a plane years ago This American comedian was on and half the Americans, you know, all the Americans on the plane were laughing. And I was like, this is awful. And then a British comedian came off and and then me and all the Brits were laughing. And you could see all the Americans not getting it. So it's still comedy. It's just, you know, what is the right fit? And I think sometimes religion can be the right fit or religion can be the wrong fit for an individual. You... You know, are, are deeply you know religious as far as your your faith. Um, you know, you, you you've had these interactions with you know Eileen and Sean. One of the things, though, I see people struggle with is when you know they'll go to their priest, their, their priest, their pastor, and you know they've lost a child, and they go, "Well, you know, God has a plan." And I see that not being a good response, not being a nurturing, healing response. So, how do you balance losing so many people? with, rest, you know, retaining that faith? How how do you bring those two together? You know, obviously this spirit is coming from love and kindness and compassion, but when you receive loss after loss, you know, was your faith challenged and how did you navigate that?
1: So what I watched with, when I watched Sean go through with, and we had this conversation was Sean prayed fervently for help and felt like either it wasn't, heard, or this person that I and his mom believed in didn't really exist. So when Sean left this world, I guarantee you, if you had asked him in those final moments, do you think you're going to go someplace safe? Even though he had been with my dad and had said I was someplace with him, I think he would have told you no. And and that part always saddens me, but I get it totally. And we had the pastor in our living room the day after Sean died, actually where I'm standing right now. And he said to us, I've got a great power. I will take away all the pain that you're feeling right now. I can take it away. said, the only trade is there'll never be a Sean Kenny. You'll never remember him, anything about him, the good, the bad, it'll be erased. Are you willing to make that deal? And we both in tears said, no, no, we're not willing to make that deal. And he said, so he looked right at me. He said, Pat, what did you pray for for the last 15 years? I said, I prayed for him to be happy and to be healthy. And he goes, he is. He said, your prayers are answered, but just not in the way that you want them to be answered. And he goes, and that's the misconception. He said, I see with people who believe in God, regardless of what faith they are, is I expect when I pray to get the answer that I want. And if I don't get that, it validates the fact that you don't exist. And he said, that's, That's what faith is. Faith is believing in something that you can't say, oh, yeah, I know for sure. To be easy, whatever God you believed in showed up and had a cup of coffee with you. You go, I don't have to worry about life. Whatever happens, happens because it's all good. Because then it doesn't work that way. So for me, when my dad passed and it drove me to that feeling of like, I don't want to live anymore. If it wasn't hearing his voice, I'm sure I would have completed it that day. I'm sure I would. And it was my my belief that, okay. He is somewhere else. And so it drove me to no matter what the plan is or what I'm going to run into for the rest of my life, I want to make him proud. So I'm just going to do the best I can. And I don't understand this plan and I don't like this plan because I had a dream two weeks before he went into the hospital that was exactly what the funeral home looked like, the suit he was wearing, the casket, and the smell of the flowers. To this day, if I smell those flowers, I get nauseous. And it was exactly what it ended up being. And I woke up in tears, and I was like, "Thank God that was just a nightmare." I believe it was, kid. You need to get ready because here it comes. And then him coming back and going, "No, you're not coming over yet." And and why is it that when Sean passed, of all the people who I knew and loved who were on the other side, and I believe there is another side somewhere, whatever you call it, why is it that it was it was my dad that went to him, and I really believe it was because that message of, hey, since you were 14, all the way to now, you have believed I've been somewhere and you've been hoping I was watching you and could see what you were doing. I just told Sean I could. And I sent him back because I understand his pain, but he's not going to be there much longer. So things that people will go, well, you've been lucky. You've been exposed to these things. And, and you know, I haven't. I always say, I'm not so sure you haven't. You just may not have been open to seeing what they were, that you you made in your mind an explanation for them to pass them off as to not be anything that could come from the beyond. I think if you believe in a higher power and you believe that you are not the one in control over all of what happens, you have to be okay with the fact that things are going to happen that you don't understand. If you think about it in your lifetime, and now being 65, I got a lot more lifetime to reflect back on, but there are things that happened in my life that I did not understand at the time, that I did not like at the time, that I look back now and go, am I glad that happened because it completely changed the direction of my life in a positive, but but I didn't get it at the time. So there are things I'm sure whenever the big guy goes, you've had enough, it's time to come here, that I'm going to be on my deathbed going, I still don't know why the hell that happened. And I always joke with people, I say, if I'm lucky enough to get to heaven, I feel Sorry for the poor SOB who's standing behind me because he's going to wait a long time to get in because I've got a lot of questions I want answered that I don't have any answers to that I don't like. And I think having that faith means trusting, a trust that we do that something good eventually is going to come out of this and I just can't see it. And my role in it is this and I'm going to do the best I can with the role I've got and hope that what I do helps one or two people somewhere along the line, and that my pain has a reason for it. And it's, there's going to be a positive even if I don't see it. Now that that made for a lot of people, and especially people who really struggled with a lot of pain in their life, it's, it is too Pollyannish. Well, that sounds good for you. or that, that that's, And I'm like, hey, <laughs> I don't wear a cape. I really don't, bullets don't bounce off of me. And, th- and this trauma and this pain, it did it, its number on me. So if I can continue to think there might be a positive out of it. you got a shot. You don't have to. You certainly don't have to believe, and this is the one I always tell people, you don't have to believe in a form of religion. People get caught up in that when I talk about signs and stuff. I go, I don't care what denomination you are or if you walk into a building or, I mean, I, I was in the seminary for a couple of years and used to get in trouble all the time when they'd ask me, well, picture, tell us about your God. How do you picture having a conversation with your God? Can you Can you explain how that would look? And I made the mistake once of saying, well, we'd have a couple of pints of Guinness sitting on a table with a, with a cheese sausage and mushroom pizza between us. And I'd be going, what the hell was that all about? Why, why, why did you do that? What, why, how do I explain that? Well, needless to say they were glad when I left, but for me, <laughs> that was like, okay, how do I make this? So it can make it real for me. And too many people, it's that faith thing is a, is a black and white. They either really believe or I don't believe at all. It's like, no, life's in the gray area. So there are times that you're not going to believe, and you shouldn't. How could you? Because you're human in the the last example I use that's kept me going. I I flunked Bible in the seminary, by the way. I wasn't very good at it. I didn't like the numbers. I thought some of the stories I couldn't relate to at all. But the one I remember is, is, so you've got the only person supposedly in history who knew for sure there was a God and knew for sure that there was afterlife is hanging on a cross, Finishing his mission that he knew he was supposed to do. And he says out loud, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in that moment, he he felt alone. In that moment, he felt abandoned. In that moment, he wasn't sure anymore. So if he could do that, well, I sure the hell can. So at third times I don't believe there's a God, or I think that the God is unjust or whatever, it's okay. I think he's okay with that, going, Yeah, you know what? My own kid didn't believe that I'm I'm okay too. So I've had to make it at my, I guess you'd say at my level, which probably sounds very sacrilegious and crazy to a lot of people, but it's worked for me. And it's what keeps me going, knowing that someday I'll get to hug my dad, I'll get to hug my son, I'll get to hug my wife, I'll get to hug my my godmother, I'll get to see those people and go, did I do okay? And that's what drives me.
0: Beautiful. There's a there's a guy uh, Wayne Dyer who sadly passed away from leukemia, but he was in his 70s, so he had a you know a somewhat long life. But I remember one of his his uh, CDs. He was very spiritual. So he was kind of the person that would gather all the wisdom from all the faiths and you know ancient texts and just put them in layman's terms. And he was talking about you know some of the issues kind of on the theme that we're discussing. And he says some people you know pray. As if God is a withholding God, like he's got all the all the good things, and you have to like beg him for it, and then he'll send one He's like, "Does that make any sense to you He said you know it it the your life is going to unfold the way it unfolds, and I think I see when you know when I submit when I clear my mind when I just allow things to happen, they do you know, and I was actually walking my dogs last night, the most beautiful sunset, and that's where I see God I see God in nature there's this red um uh, Red Hawk that that follows us everywhere. I call him Steve Stephen Hawkins, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know this and the, there's um those ones the red cardinals they'll pop up for no you know so yes. i whether it's my, it's james gearing's faith you know and it doesn't matter i don't need to start banging on people's doors saying you need to start believing in birds and sunsets you know this is this is everyone has their own journey and so i think that's it when you're slamming your your fist on a, on a bible or a quran or whatever it is saying you need to believe this way i think that's the the error you know if you have a mixture of you know christian texts and you know spiritual visits beautiful you know if you you know if you consider yourself agnostic and that's gives you peace then then you know good for you i mean everyone has their own journey i think that's the problem is that we we see a lot of people forcing their beliefs on someone else and it really starts to kind of get awry when those beliefs in my opinion deviate from the teachings of these prophets if it's not about kindness and compassion and community and acceptance and gratitude and it's instead prejudice and bigotry. It's like, okay, time out. <laughs> we've, we've gone way off track now. But yeah, I mean, I think that's that's beautiful that you were able to to kind of navigate what could turn a person against the God that they were believing in for so long and take a step back and, and start to have an understanding, which then would give you acceptance and allow you to move back forward again.
1: I always think that people who are um, zealots about their, their religion are very insecure in their religion because I don't, I don't go out. And I even try to clarify when I do do Sean's talk, when I talk about signs, I'm like, I'm not talking about religion here. I'm just telling you about things that happen that my explanation for them are that there is a God and that there's another place. I don't really, I don't. And if you don't believe that I'm, I'm totally cool with that, but I finish it with, if you've ever lost somebody that you really love, and you wonder, are they someplace? I go, I believe they are, because I go, my kid was there. And I see people who continuously push back and go, but you, you you know, the Catholics are famous for this. You know, if you're not a Catholic, you're not really a religious person. That used to drive me out of another reason I didn't make it out of the seminary. But it's it's the harder you push back means you don't have confidence in what you, you believe in. If I have confidence in what I believe in, I'm fine talking to somebody who doesn't believe in any God at all and go... I respect your opinion and I can see where you're coming from and I I hope we all end up in the same place and it's a good place, but it's cool that you got to do what you got to do. Because if I keep pushing back, I think it's because a little voice in my behind me goes, he's right. Maybe he's right. Maybe you're wrong. And it's like, no, not wrong. I'm, I'm comfortable with what I believe, but it doesn't scare me that you believe something different. And I think that's a a microcosm of what's the problem with the world is we're all afraid that what you believe you got to push on somebody else instead of just letting them believe what they believe. And we all live together a lot better than we do. Going, I'm going to fight for mine and you fight for yours. And after a while, you're not really sure what the hell you're fighting for, but you're going to fight. And uh, yeah, that would take us down a whole nother podcast. To <laughs>
0: No, but I think the, the the takeaway is this, you know, the faith element is what's next. The faith element is, you know, who who is the puppet master? And I mean that in an endearing way, not a controlling way. But what our truth is, as best we know, is that we get one lifetime and we can leave this life, this planet, better than we found it or we can destroy it, you know. So I think that's it. Whether you believe in heaven or eternal lakes of fire or, you know, 20 virgins or whatever, whatever it is the only thing we can really control is right now and that and that includes dealing with the traumas that are sent our way Does, do you allow it to destroy you and you know send you down a, a path or do you navigate that grieve hard cry scream you know punch inanimate objects and then come out the other end and then see how you can use that trauma to start helping other people navigate their pain
1: i i might my new thought process that I've tried to tried to formulate into how I want to get the message out to people and I haven't I haven't made it work yet to where I'm comfortable with it. But is, you know, the book is taking the cape off and and the whole idea was realizing that you're human and that you can't be perfect. And whether you're in a leadership role in an organization or whether you're a mom or dad of a family or a big corporate, it doesn't matter. You can't do it all. You can't, so you got to be okay with taking it off. The key that I'm working on now is, but you can't leave it off. You have to make a decision to put it back on again. You can't quit on life. It's not that easy. Now there are people, unfortunately, that when they've gotten to that point are the ones that say, you know, I don't want to be here anymore and and go through that whole process and may complete a suicide. But for most people, they're incredibly resilient and, and faith falls into that resiliency. It fuels, I think, resiliency. But you have to make a conscious decision. I'm going to put the cape back on again. And so you have to know your why. Why would I put it back on again? Why did I put it back on after my dad died? Why did I put it back on again after my son died? Why did I put it back on again after my wife died? And faith was a part of that. And and then for me, just to be very clear to everybody who's listening, I've been very rewarded also with what that's done for me. I've had people, yes, I've had people taken from my life that I wish were still here. But I've also had people put into my life that shouldn't be there, that have, have refueled me and kept me alive and kept me going. So I, I see both sides of it, and I think that that if you don't, have, people will always say to me, "I don't know how you're still standing." And I go, "My, it's my faith because it really it's kept me resilient. Not, not there weren't always you know wonderful days, and there still aren't, but that's the part that keeps me." fueled and for me I need that for somebody else they might not or might not believe it but for me if you were trying to define what allows you to keep doing what you're doing that's it that's that belief that there's there's a there's a good that comes out of all of this and even though I may not be smart enough to figure it out I'm I'm not giving up on that that's still my why
0: well people listening I'm sure, you know, especially if they've listened to the first episode as well, are, are curious w- about the book, where to find the audio book, where to reach out to you if they want to bring you to, to speak at their department or their their conference. So where are the best places to find the book online? And then where's the website they can reach out to you?
1: Well, probably the, the best ways they can go, you can get the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Audible has the, the, the Audible book. Um, The website is just patrickjkenny.com. If you Google my name or you Google that or whatever and and the website, will have information about how to contact me. If you're kind enough and would like me to speak, it's got some blogs on there. If you're you're not looking to listen to me for a couple of hours, like you're kind enough to have me do uh, and you want just a short snippet that that's enough out of you. um, Those are on there also in some articles and, um, and if I can help anybody, and I always tell people that there's an email on there that goes, that comes to me. Sometimes it takes me a while to get back because people are very kind about reaching out, but I will eventually get back to you. So whether it's personal or professional, or you're looking for help, some help, if I can do that in some way, um, I certainly will do that. But I would encourage you again, if you're, whichever way you want to digest the book, um, whether you read it or you, you listen to it, um. I would encourage you if, if you, if it means something to you, pick one person that you think is going to benefit from it and give it to them. Because that's where my goal was to grow Sean's team, to get as many people out there on his team. And then when Eileen passed, it became to me, I needed people to be Eileen and Sean's disciples. You go spread the word. It's not me. This isn't my word. I'm, I'm taking what I learned from both of them. And Spread it to as many people as you can, because if you want to feel like you make a difference in the world, it feels a little bit better. Um, Many times people will see the cover and go, oh, it's such a sad book. I don't want to read it. Well, yeah, there's a lot of sad things in it. But the the end message is about hope and resiliency and how do you get there. And so if somebody's in despair, um, just give it a shot. They end up throwing it away. Great. But but if you think it might help, act on it because you'll feel like you did something for somebody.
0: Well, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, I, I don't even know how long we talked. The first time, I'm sure it was probably about two hours, hour and a half. Um, so here we are now approaching four hours total. But you know, your story in itself and its raw form the first time was so incredibly powerful. But this new perspective, this kind of standing on the other side now where you've actually been able to find some catharsis and, you know, process some things um, was a completely different, you know, lens. And it was such an amazing conversation. So I want to thank you again for being so generous with your time.
1: Well, I always enjoy our conversations, whether we're on a podcast or we get to do it offline. Um, You have always impressed me so much with you have a genuine heart. And and to me, the message out there for people is if you're going to succeed in life, if you have a genuine heart, you just overall just try to be nice, as Chief Alan Brunasini said, um, you're going to make it. So it's always my honor to be on with you. I enjoy our discussions. And uh, I also learn a lot from you and from from the amazing guests and the variety that you have. So I encourage people, keep listening to you, brother, because you you send a great message across the bottom.